This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I have to sometimes slow down and breathe and be like, you published two books. You, you did that. So... There's always that, even though it's never enough. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas, and literary agent Sarah N. Fisk. Derek Millman is the author of the YA novels Swipe Right for Murder and Scream All Night. A classically trained actor who worked for years in TV and film, Derek now lives in Brooklyn, where he tries to write full-time. So please welcome Derek to the show. Hello. Hi, how are you? Hi, good. Thanks so much for coming on and talking to my listeners today. My pleasure. We are going to talk about your journey to publication. And so we're going to start all the way back at the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? Yeah, it was definitely in like several stages, I think. Uh, The first thing that happened was that I was like auditioning a lot for like a lot of A-list projects and coming very, very close. And I started to have like, I started to feel feel this sort of creative fatigue and I wanted to to, to sort of step back and, and take control of my like creative endeavors. And I had started out as a playwright, but I never, I wasn't really much, I wasn't a good playwright. I was (laughs) sort of writing in the wrong medium. And then when I went to grad school for acting, I went to Yale drama, which is, you know, famous for its grind. I really stopped writing for for many years. Mm. So I was like actually in Montreal for like my brother's bachelor party. And I was, I I was going to be his best man at his uh, wedding. And I was working on, his speech in a cafe in Montreal, which is a very dreamy city. Um, I don't know if you've ever been there. Mm-mm. Makes sense that a lot of like video game studios were there. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, I, I get that. And I was taking notes, and then I, I was like, you know what? I, YA was sort of reaching this apex where it was sort of permeating pop culture, and it was certainly permeating Hollywood and what I was doing in the entertainment industry. You know, Hunger Games was popping. This is maybe around. 2012, 2013, Jennifer Lawrence had just signed on to do the first movie. So it was really sort of, it was really sort of hitting, hitting everyone. And I was like, I feel like because I had read a lot of like, I guess what could be considered like early, early YA books before YA was a thing like, like J.D. Salinger. I had read a lot of those books, like when I was like a a small kid. And then I wound up doing like a, a stage production of Salinger's Franny and Zoe when I was in college at Northwestern. I sort of like internalized a lot of his language. And, and I feel like since he was sort of one of the first writers that created the whole concept of voice, I felt like I could nail voice. So I started taking notes in this cafe. I was like, come on, I just like pushed myself. I'm like, come on, Derek, you can like come up with some cool idea. Mm-hmm. And I took some like very vague notes about a kid who was sort of waking up having written strange symbols in his sleep and he didn't know what was going on and it was sort of linked to this parallel world and there was a brother and there was all this stuff and then I forgot about it honestly it was like it was in a journal it was in a notebook and I uh, many many months later and this is after my brother's wedding and all that maybe six months later actually I was in Los Angeles I was subletting a place in West West LA 
And there was a lot of downtime between auditions. And I didn't even, I don't think I even had a laptop with me. I was very, I was just like a famously light packer. And I think I just (laughs) like, I like to write by hand. And I had the notebook with me that I had taken to Montreal. And I just happened to read over these old notes I had taken and I haven't, I hadn't seen them in months. I was like, Oh my God, this is so there's something here. So I spent like the, maybe the next week or so like writing an outline for a YA book uh, that was first called dream crawler. Uh, and then later became titled the gray light chronicles. And then later <laughs> we called it the neon veil, <laughs> but I was writing the bare bones outline of this, uh, of this book while I was in Los Angeles in between auditions when I was just very frustrated and it was just a lot of, a lot of loneliness too. I think I find LA a very lonely place where things very isolated, especially if you're there visiting by yourself or you're there on work. So I wrote all these notes and then, I didn't forget about it this time. When I got home, I think it was in spring of like 2013, maybe I was like really jazzed. I'm like, I think that I have something here. And then five months later, I wrote a first draft and it was done. I I think it was maybe, I I don't remember word count. It was maybe, I had maybe 300 pages of, of text. And I started circulating it to family and friends and people were like, wow, this is really good. And I'm like, okay. Like, and people, you know, even like cousins and stuff are like, this is some of the best stuff I've ever read. I'm like, all right, calm down. I don't know what's <laughs> going to happen. Let's see, you know? So I, I really didn't, I really had no idea what I was doing as probably many writers do. It was like just the period before everything was moving to Twitter and all those pitch contests were starting. I didn't know if they had started by then. I didn't know about DV pit and pitch wars and stuff. They, they may have already started, but I, they weren't reaching me. I wasn't really active on Twitter yet. So that's how I wrote the first the first YA book that um, I, I wrote. At the, that's how it came to be. So when you decided you wanted to be a published author, what did you kind of think that that was going to look like for you? I didn't really know what the other side of it looked like. In my old neighborhood, there was a Barnes and Noble and I'd go there and I'd look at all the books that were in the young adult section just to get a sense of what was selling and what was being published at the time. And I was like, yeah, maybe one day I could be here. Although there's a lot of fantasy and there's a lot of, <laughs> it was the, the period of time where like everyone on the cover looked like Jennifer Lawrence, like wearing some sort of cloak <laughs> in a storm looking fierce. I'm like, oh. It was uh, the white girl in a dress cover yeah, era. Yeah, it was that. It was that era. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was like, huh, <laughs> I wonder. So I, I wasn't sure what it was going to look like for me. I felt like if I was able to do it and get published, I would probably be doing something that was maybe a bit unique. And I was right. I, it, was, it was unique. It turned out to be maybe the first book anyway, <laughs> a little bit too unique and ambitious. <laughs> but I felt that that was pretty much my primary answer to your question is that I, I felt like whatever it was, I was going to be on a different kind of path than what was, I think, typically marketed or what was the, the commercial the commercial end of things. Mm. So once you decided you wanted to be a published author, how did you learn more about the publishing industry, like how to query, how it works, everything like that? I think I looked at Query Tracker and like Publishers Marketplace. And, you know, you could do it in a few hours and get a pretty good sense of, you know, the agencies out there, the good agencies out there. As my friend 
in my debut debut group lately or told me she's like yeah there's tons of agents but doesn't it seem like <laughs> 20 people have everyone uh, and it's kind of true in a way like there's like hundreds of agents yeah you have a lot of options but like 20 people have everyone so i uh, i again i wasn't really active on twitter yet but i started to realized that I needed to be. So I was I started like looking at agents on on Twitter and then I started query. I think I, I worked as hard as I could on getting the manuscript in, in my eyes as polished as I could. And then I started querying. And what happened in that first round was 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 pretty much nothing. I, I I got rejections all over the place. As any writer will tell you, just tons and tons of rejections. Um, nothing, nothing special, no feedback, nothing. But then what happened is I'm like, you know, I have I've been in the industry, like, why am I doing it this way? So I gave the manuscript to a friend of mine who's a movie producer. And she's still very active in the industry. She just passed the manuscript along to two publishers. I think one was at St. Martin's Press and one was at HarperCollins. The editor or the publisher at St. Martin's wasn't into it. But the editor at HarperCollins really thought there was something there. And she sort of took me under her wing and we started emailing back and forth. And this is something that really doesn't happen. And she said, I want you to rewrite this and here's what I want you to do with it. And I think that this could be something because your voice is very unique, which is something that I was thinking I had that, that this whatever, whatever was going to happen with me and my path, I probably had a voice that was its own thing. As soon as that happened, and I was working on this manuscript with her, I requeried all the agents that had passed on me and had rejected me. And every single one of them, <laughs> some of them wrote back in like 15 minutes. We're like, oh my, because I said, I have, a, I have a publisher that's interested, HarperCollins, and I'm working with them and revising, but I feel like I need an agent. With the same pages that were in the original query, we're like, this is great. I love the pages you've included. Send me the full, send me the full, you know, send me the full manuscript. Most people asked, just, just send me the full manuscript. A few were like, no, send me the first 50 pages. I never understood the partial thing. Um, it's what If that's their thing, okay. It's just very strange to me. Just read the first 50 pages. Why do I have to break it up? Read what you want. It just seems so strange to me. I feel like that was probably a holdout from when everything was done with paper. Yeah, it probably is. And they should let it go. Or maybe they have. I, I don't know. Although I do know people who are querying and it's still happening where if there's interest, most most of them just ask for the full manuscript. So I sent a lot of full manuscripts out and I got more rejections. Um, I got a lot of rejections. Um, and then I had a lot of personal stuff happen to me. Um, I had a close friend die very suddenly. Uh, we had to move out of the apartment we had been living in for 11 years because it was sort of going co-op and it was just time to get out. So we moved to Brooklyn um, when I was in a very sort of fragile state and I was still getting rejections. And once we moved to Brooklyn, like everything changed. Moving from the Upper West Side to Williamsburg, Brooklyn was like the equivalent of moving to a different city and state. Um, <laughs> it was a, a totally different. Everything was different. It was in a phase, this specific area of having a dreaminess to it. Uh, and that immediately affected my writing and everything that I was doing creatively. What wound up happening, I'm trying to remember this now, um, is that one agent was very interested, uh, started to get very interested um, but he didn't like, he wanted to work with me and he wound up like taking me out to very fancy lunches and very fancy places and was sort of whining and dining me. But the version that he wanted of this book was just something I felt like I, I wanted an agent and I really wanted to make this happen. Uh, but I, I just like the version that he wanted was so different from what I felt like I could write. Mm. So I was, I was almost like on the cusp of just, of just turning him down when my current agent, uh, Victoria Marini, said, you know what? I love 
I love this. I don't think it's quite ready to go out yet, but I have a few thoughts. Um, why don't we meet for coffee? And that's an advantage of being in New York because I was already meeting. I was already meeting with this other agent and I was able to meet her in person. We had coffee in my neighborhood. When she got on a train to meet me, she, she also lives in Brooklyn, but a different part of Brooklyn. And um, we met for coffee and we chatted and she talked to me about the manuscript and um, what, what her vision for it was. And I felt like I could, I could match it. She said it had a very like clockwork orange vibe. I just liked the things that she was saying. It made me realize that she had sort of gotten it in a very, in a deeper way. And she sort of understood what, what I wanted to do with it. Mm. Did I answer your question? Am I over? Am I over talking? Yeah, you're, you're going into the next question, but that's oh, fine. I was just going to let go you ahead. keep ask going. The, yeah. no, ask, the, ask the next question. <laughs> no, so the next question is basically after you did your research, what happened between then and signing your first book contract? So I feel like you're you're part of the way there. You can just keep on going. A few weeks later, I think we agreed that we could work together. And she sort of announced on Twitter. I think I had maybe like 200 followers at the time, maybe even less. We, I was now wrapped. And it was like a big day for me. Um, <laughs> I think that was like 2015. So it was only a few few weeks after I had, I had moved to Brooklyn. And then she had notes. So I wound up working on the manuscript with her notes. And then I wound up going to Paris to visit a friend um, with my partner. And we were sort of bumping around Paris. And she timed everything perfectly, which she always does. So on my flight home, I got like the major notes from her about where, she, where about the revisions and where she wanted me to take this. So I basically read what this book was going to become like on the flight back from Paris to, to New York City. And I guess this was like the summer of 2015. So we must have gone out with it that fall, I think. She wanted to time it to go out in the in the fall. What wound up happening is actually exciting and heartbreaking at the same time. That editor who had taken me under her wing loved it, loved it so much what I did with it, and she wanted to buy it. But uh, when it got to sales and uh, um, acquisitions, uh, it got shut down because they felt like it was too ambitious. They thought that it was too different. It was too unique. It was straddling too many genres because it was sort of a horror sci-fi fantasy. Same thing happened at Razorbill. An editor at Razorbill also tried to buy it. And the same thing happened. It got shut down at sales and marketing or the acquisitions, acquisitions, I should say. Sales and marketing didn't necessarily know where it would go on a shelf in a bookstore, like what genre it would be. It's funny because Stranger Things came along like a year or so later and did exactly what I was doing. <laughs> Except my book wasn't set in the 80s, but it merged horror and sci-fi. And it's ex- it was almost like exactly what I was doing that I could have reverse pitched it as Stranger Things if, I, if Stranger Things had existed. The thing is, I was writing the next book at the time. Mm-hmm. I was already writing the next book. So it was heartbreaking that this, that this book wasn't going to sell. And maybe one day it will. I don't know what's going to happen with it. Some people are still like, it's the best thing you ever wrote, Derek. (laughs) (laughs) Like, thanks. (laughs) Thanks for that. But I was already writing Scream All Night. And Scream All Night is very much influenced in like my first year or two of living in Brooklyn. And a lot of places in the book uh, are sort of modeled on places that existed in the neighborhood that most most don't exist anymore because this neighborhood has a lot of turnover. But the, the dreaminess that I was experiencing uh, influenced Scream All Night, as well as my time in movie sets, my interest in horror. And I did a sort of method actor approach to writing it, where I sort of just subsumed myself in the world of B-horror movies. We wound up getting a double offer from uh, HarperCollins, where the editor who took me under her wing offered, and then another imprint, which was Balzer and Bray, offered. I actually wound up going with Balzer and Bray because I thought they'd be a better fit for the book uh, editorially. 
and their the vision of that editor was more aligned with what I felt. The book was announced like right before the 2016 election, and then it came out in 2018 mm. uh, to a very changed world, and that was my debut. Mm. All right. It's time for the first cue of the podcast. Can you read your successful query letter for us? Dear Victoria, I hope this email finds you well. Happily, I'm in a unique and lucky position as a debut novelist. Some colleagues circulated my manuscript and got it to HarperCollins. HC responded enthusiastically and gave me a lot of notes. I found their feedback intriguing and incisive, and I spent the last six months revising along their guidelines. It was a successful process, and I just sent them the revised MS last week. The project has attracted the interest of a few agents. One has taken me out to lunch twice now to discuss the direction of the project. We aren't sure yet if our vision for the project is a match. Uh, HarperCollins made it clear they have a short list of agents they will recommend, but before things go any faster, I wanted to reach out to a few agents who are on my list, on my own list. The story concerns 15-year-old former lacrosse star Brady Baylock. His chance at being high school golden boy was shattered once his father, a notable astrophysicist, disappeared. Brady's gone off his antidepressants and is experiencing an escalating series of bizarre and terrifying phenomena. Besides having the state of his sanity thrown into question, these events are causing tension with his best friend, wreaking havoc with his grades, and hindering his budding romance with a mysterious girl at school. Brady realizes he has a genetic anomaly that not only allows him to decrypt the fabric of space and time, but pass through it. On the other side of the fabric, Brady finds a fractured, irradiated version of his New England town called the Quintessence that's as psychedelic and seductive as it is dangerous and broken, a cosmological mistake that was never meant to be. Searching for his father and desperate to save his deeply depressed mother, Brady learns that only ones who can help him are a feral gang of thieves who manipulate their consciousness to commit horrific crimes. Brady travels back and forth from the quintessence, and the two realities begin to bleed. Brady is not only at risk from radiation, but of getting a lifelong residency at his town's forbidding psych ward, colloquially known as the Longhampton home for lunatic teens. As Brady decides just how far he's willing to go to put the pieces of his old life back together, he discovers his father wasn't who he thought he was, and he has a brother who wants a piece of Brady's life all to himself. The Great Lake Chronicles is a YA fantasy. It's 92,000 words. It's been compared to the Raven Boys and Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. I am querying you because you're attracted to the dark and edgy, you value strong voices, you appreciate humor, and you don't shy away from horror. I studied English, creative writing, and theater at Northwestern University. I began my career as a playwright, but was accepted into the MFA program of the Yale School of Drama as an actor. When I'm not writing, I continue to act in TV and film. I've included the first two chapters below. Thank you for your consideration. Very best wishes, Derek Nolan. Yeah, I can definitely see some Stranger Things tie-ins and the Clockwork Orange. So that's interesting. (laughs) For anyone who processes that kind of information better, you can find the text of the query linked in the show notes. But I did want to point out one thing because I think your story and the query, there's an interesting twist on this because you will hear some people say that you can't get agent attention. You can't get editor attention unless you already know someone and you did know someone and it did get you agent and editor attention, but it still didn't sell the book. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's true. Not the first one. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's just really interesting because people think, Oh, if you know someone you have an in and you're golden, but then Obviously, that's not necessarily true. Connections can always help. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to help you hit that home run. And this was going to probably be like a duology or trilogy. And they they knew that they would probably have to, it was going to be a big advance. And so uh, they were extra skittish about something that was maybe not along the lines of 
um, what was typical at the time. And that even includes having a, a male protagonist, which mm-hmm. is still not as common as you'd think. Yeah. So what has your experience been like since signing that first book contract, especially were there any surprises along the way? Yeah, I mean, it's all full of surprises. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what surprised me most about the my experience at HarperCollins is that people could really just not care about a book that they've acquired. Um, and I fell through every crack that you could possibly fall through due to um, many different factors. Uh, one of those factors is that I lost my editor and then I lost a second editor and then I, like, oh. I lost a third editor and I lost a publicist <laughs> and they were restructuring. What are their... you doing to them? <laughs> I swear I'm the easiest person to work with. I think they were just young and they were just kind of moving off to different jobs. It happens mm-hmm. a lot in publishing, but if it happens to you, you can get really screwed. Um, And that's unfortunately what happened. And I was just like, I would wake up to very, very, very angry emails from my agent um, about her experience trying to get HarperCollins to give us any kind of marketing. And I just didn't realize this could happen. It was kind of a real, it was a a massive letdown on many, uh, many Many factors, many, many areas. <laughs> That's like, um, it was it was very disillusioning, uh, and uh, unfortunately, lots of people have had that experience. Not only with HarperCollins, which is, uh, but with uh, with other publishers as well. So uh, when they didn't want my second book, this was uh, Swipe Right for Murder, which at the time was called Night Flight. Uh, at the time, I just told my agent, "Let's let's let's bail." Um, so she submitted it around in um, Jimmy Patterson. Uh, James Patterson's YA imprint at uh, Little Brown acquired it. And I had a great experience with them. So great that I, it made me angry in retrospect, realizing all the things that HarperCollins could have done that didn't oh, do no. for Scream and Light. And I should also say, and I didn't mention this, but six months before the book's release, there was a Hollywood bidding war for the rights. Mm. So I was dealing with producers and famous people who were trying to make it into a television show. And uh, this, this, this actually wound up being a trip to Hollywood and a universal backlot. Um, Sean Hayes acquired it with uh, UTV and they were going to make it into this big TV show. And they got the showrunner and it was all set to go. And then they, they couldn't sell it. Just like my first book, uh, like I think <laughs> Netflix turned it down and uh, like a, a couple of the big ones turned it down. But some of them just had very specific mandates where like we can't do something with a protagonist this young. Apple, for instance, wanted to see a pilot first. They really liked it, but they didn't want to write the pilot. They wanted to get paid first. So then uh, while we were in the middle of all of this, the showrunner jumped ship to take a paying gig because uh, he has children and or whatever. And. <laughs> that was it. The rights got reverted back to me. Mm-hmm. And, but I had a great agent at ICM and um, at the time, as she's not there anymore. And I'm with a different film agent. Um, and we're trying to get swipe option. But um, so it was like, it was like what HarperCollins was doing, and what Hollywood was doing. And I was just seeing like two different, like wildly different reactions. And it was just very strange. But I write very visually. So it didn't entirely surprise me. But I was like, oh, this could be a TV show. I see. So there's all, so there's all, this, all this great hope of what the first book was going to be. I have since had the rights reverted back to me. So HarperCollins no longer owns Scream All Night. I do. I do not know what's going to happen uh, if it'll ever get republished again, rehomed. I hope so. I hope so. If I have a third or fourth book that's very, very successful, that could happen. Um, but I just wanted to, uh, my agent wanted to get the rights back to me. So second experience at Little Brown was great. I went on a book tour. They did everything they could for me. They, they we, I, you know, I, I was at, um, they had a big fancy party with James Patterson. I did a signing at Book Expo. I went to Y'all Fest. 
I went to the Louisiana Book Festival. I went all over the town. I went to the Pasadena YA Festival. Um, uh, they, I was, I was basically on in airports for that whole year, right before COVID. Um, and they <laughs> paid for everything. They paid for my flights and they paid for hotels. <laughs> it was it's and, and even like if I ever took an Uber, they would pay for it. Um, so that's how, I mean, but as people pointed out, that's also not typical. So I had two mm-hmm. atypical experiences at the opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. I think it's important to point that out. And so, you know, as a result, Swipe Right for Murder uh, earned out pretty quickly and sold a lot of copies because they put, they put the muscle in. And I also, I, re- I mean, it's, it's, um, it's an edgy book for YA. And I, I really, really love what it is. I loved being in that world and I miss, I miss it in a way. I miss, sometimes you go back and you're like, God, I miss writing that because you're, you're submerged in that world. My uh, tour for the, the, for Swipe Right for Murder ended like 45 minutes before the pandemic. <laughs> I, I, I got to the last hotel in Chicago to do an event as like South by Southwest announced that they were oh, going goodness. to. And, and that's, I think, where culturally we all realize that this is going to be uh, a, a big thing. And that's when I got to the hotel and I'm in like a germaphobe. So I was like, oh my God, what? I, this is like the worst timing. And then when I got to New York, I had maybe a week or so before New York shut down. Mm. And then during the pandemic, my editor left and then Jimmy Patterson got shut down. Uh, so there's no more. So I don't have an imprint anymore. So I don't have a publisher at the moment. Mm. It is time for the quick round. I call it author DNA, just classifications we like to put writers in. Are you a pantser or a plotter? Uh, I'm somewhere in between. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Overwriter. Do you prefer to write in the morning or at night? Afternoon. When you start a new project, do you typically start with character or plot or concept or something else first? Depends on the book. Um, Usually uh, character. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee in the morning, tea at night. When you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? I like to have electronica music, um, atmospheric music. Hmm. When it comes to writing the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? Get it right. (laughs) (laughs) What tools or software do you use to draft? I use MS Word. I take notes and my one writing quirk, I use a, what's called a post, postal co notebook, which is uh, made by a Japanese company. I like to write in these notebooks. I take no, uh, take notes by hand in those. And then I use MS Word to draft. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? I love revising. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Oh my God, sequential order. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> and final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? Um, also depends on the circumstances. Uh, I, I think I'm classified as an I, INFJ. Uh, so I, I would say I'm, 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 an, I'm an introvert with extroverted tendencies, depending on the circumstances. So now we're going to talk about the second cue of the show. What were some of the qualms or worries that you had on your journey? And were they realized? Did you overcome them? How did that shake out? You know, there's always a question like, am I a good enough writer? There's so much out there. There's And seeing the numbers, like when agents post their numbers on Twitter, like how many queries they got. I'm like, geez, this is rough. There's, you know, they get so many. So I guess I overcame a lot of that just by sticking true to my voice and my, my own vision so that I was, I was able to get published. And while the first experience was a letdown, the second one was better. And I hope to continue having better publishing, especially YA publishing or just publishing in general is, 
is something that you kind of, there's just really no way to um, predict anything. You have to learn as you go. And there's just things that I don't even know yet. You have, you learn, that's why the, our debut group was so uh, necessary because people just were asking questions and like, no one really knows anything where it's like, you can't really, you don't really learn a lot until you, uh, until you do it, even down to like mundane things. Like we had an arc tour where we would send around our, our arcs, which are advanced reader copies. And I only found out later that if you're sending books by mail, which you do in giveaways, you can just tell them it's, you want the media mail rate, mm-hmm. which is like $3. <laughs> so I was spending so much. I didn't even, little <laughs> things like that. I just had no idea. Uh, I've never, I never sent books by mail before. How would I know? So yeah, a lot of things about like, am I good enough? Can I, can I break through the market? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I overcame a lot of that because I, I just like, I have to sometimes slow down and breathe and be like, you published two books, you know, you, you did that. So there's always that, even yeah. though it's never enough. It's always, it's never enough. Hollywood's the same way. Being an actor is the same way, you know, <laughs> there's always that next thing you have to do. You can be a movie star, but you never won an Oscar. You have to win the Oscar and then you have yeah. to do this, you know, then you have to get the franchise, you know, it's, it's so it's never enough. Yeah, I can see how acting is similar in that way. And I think I've heard I or I've had a couple of former stand-up comics on the podcast who turned into writers and they've talked about that too. Like the similarities between like facing the rejection and stand-up comedy is a is a famously brutal industry. <laughs> I, I think it's maybe one of the worst. It's one of the most brutal. I have a friend who's a stand-up comic too, and I I hear the stories, and you're probably right. There probably are a lot of similarities there, for sure. All right, and you already referenced the third cue, but do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of different or interesting, unique? One thing I would say, yeah, I mentioned the postal code notebooks that I favor. It's just kind of pretentious, honestly. I'm just making fun of myself for that. <laughs> One thing is that I merged like a lot of things that I learned with my acting into my writing. So, um, uh, as an actor, and especially being classically trained, I learned a lot about importance of conflict, uh, psychological profiling, um, the importance of um, high stakes and scenes, and I was able to sort of just move that stuff over to a different uh, adjacent art form. But something I did is, I mean, the, the method gets talked about and misunderstood a lot in the, in the acting profession, but I did something along those lines with writing the first two books where I submerged myself in, in the world of it. And that helps. So for instance, when I was writing Scream All Night, which is set in a in Moldavia's castle, which is a fictional B-horror movie studio, I wasn't just drafting the book, but I was watching all the hammer horror movies at night. I was reading so many books about old, you know, horror movies and, and studios like trauma films and hammer films. So that all the sort of world of it was, um, was constantly around me. And similarly with swipe right for murder, which is, um, sort of a 21st century digital queer take on Hitchcock and North by Northwest. I would, constantly play those movies particularly north by northwest just to have in the background so i could just hear the rhythm of the dialogue and the banter and stuff i've heard that filmmakers do this um paul thomas anderson and when he was making um there will be blood uh, of course now i can't remember the movie but there was one movie a classic movie that was so influential for him in this movie that he constantly had it playing because he could um, learn every nuance about it so that's probably my biggest quirk is my that I like to sort of submerge myself in, totally in the, in the process and the world of the, the book. Mm, cool. When you were in the lowest parts of your writing journey, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? 
I think my love of creating something and just when, when you're at your lowest, it's usually like the commerce end of things. It's usually the business of publishing. If you just stay true or if I just stayed true to what I was working on and just was like, I know I can do this and just went back to the work itself and not necessarily pay, pay attention to what was happening externally around me, things that I couldn't control and focus on what I could control, which was the quality of the work and my writing. I, I was better off just letting go of things that I couldn't control. Yeah, that's good. What are some of the mistakes that you felt like you made along the way that you might like to warn aspiring authors about so that they don't make the same ones? I would say that just because <laughs> just because an imprint wants to publish your book doesn't mean you should let that imprint publish your book. Your debut is your debut is really important and if you're not going to have the experience, it shouldn't just be about getting published, honestly. If a debut goes sideways, you can spend a long time. I was lucky because I, I, I had a second book come out that sold better than the first book. But if it, but I did learn that if a debut goes sideways, you could it could take a long time to recover from that. So you want to make sure that this is the right book and this is the right publisher for it. Um, and that this thing that you've struggled over is maybe not your debut. And maybe your debut should be a different book. And this book that you've struggled over should come later in a different form. So that's one thing I, I would say to do. And I would just be up on the industry and research everything because it's constantly changing uh, in terms of like what's being done, like what, what, what the etiquette, etiquette is. So I would be up on, on that as well as very much understand what books are selling, what books are popular within the last three years? Like, because people are still querying and, and talking about that they're going to write the next, you know, I don't know, Divergent or something. But that's, that's considered ancient history in publishing. So you have to really, really, really come up with something. You have to show that you're at least cognizant of what the industry is doing right now, what the publishing world is doing right now within your genre. And you have to understand very, very, very specifically what your genre is um, and where it would go on a bookstore shelf or a library. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have to sort of have some sort of understanding of not just the, not just writing and of, of your own work, but of how your work would be marketed and sold and not, and just remain as the least amount of ignorant about that, I would say, <laughs> as knowledgeable <laughs> as possible. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons that you learned on your journey to publication? Don't burn any bridges. Publishing has a long memory. Uh, make sure you behave yourself. And you can always not say it or not tweet it. Not something that's happened to me, but things that I've seen happen. So you, you have to be, you have to be careful. I kind of call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. So who are some of the people who helped you along the way and how? Uh, my family, my mom, my dad, my brother, um, a huge amount of uh, emotional support. And my partner, Brian, who is reads everything and I, you know, is so supportive because I we live together. So he's <laughs> um, able to tell me what's working and what isn't. Uh, he's probably the first person that reads anything I write. And of course my agent, Victoria, uh, she's just a good friend. Um, and she's, um, she's just really passionate about what she does. And she's a great protector of me and of my writing. Mm. Nice. Can you give us a little kind of sneak peek of what you're working on now, what we might be able to expect from you in the future? 
Yes. Um, the next project I'm working on um, that you might hear announced soon, or it might be something else, is um, <laughs> uh, it's actually a piece of um, queer, dark academia. Mm. Um, it's called With Love and Mischief, and it's about um, a dark gay romance set against a secret society at a New England prep school. It's based on a very real one at Yale, um, and I have all their notes and stuff. <laughs> I learned all about it, um, and there's a kidnapping involved, and it's 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 just it's, a, it's a, it turned out to be this very sort of beautiful neo gothic story, and I, I'm a little obsessed with it. <laughs> I also worked on this project, which we were trying to sell on proposal called Johnny and the Jewels, which is basically like adventures and babysitting meets uncut gems, but queer. <laughs> <laughs> it's so punk and like whacked out. I'm not sure it's going to sell because it has this madcap quality. I'm just not sure what's going to happen with it, but it's, it turned out to be so funny to me. So I hope something happens. I know people would love it. So few have seen it. Um, and I feel like editors so far are like, I don't know what this is. So I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, the one thing that may be the most successful is my transition into adult. And I'm working on a, um, a gothic retelling of Frankenstein, a modern retelling of Frankenstein, but it's queer. Um, and like all my things lately, um, it's very loose. Uh, uh, it's a very loose retelling. So it's not like a plot scene by scene. And it pays homage to a lot of other horror uh classics as well that's going pretty well so uh those are three things right there i've been pretty busy i just haven't been able to announce anything yet yeah all right derek thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story with my listeners thank you for having me thank you so much for listening to this episode of queries qualms and quirks you can find the text of derek's query in the show notes along with links to find out more about him and his books if you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Spotify, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description, or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.